Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Do you think you're a generous person? We're going to talk about generosity today on Trending as we continue our series on the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit coming off of Pentecost a couple Sundays ago. We're almost there to the end. If you've been with us, you can catch up on the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit series at the podcast, relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you catch your podcast. We'll also talk about kindness. What does it mean to be kind? seems to me that these are things we often teach children and then forget ourselves as we get a little older. Joining me in just a moment will be Dr. John Grabowski. He is a professor at the university, or sorry, at Catholic University of America here, Catholic University. And he's the author of the recent book, Unraveling Gender, The Battle Over Sexual Differences. I know we've talked a lot about the gender topic this week, but we'll touch on it from a fascinating perspective of how the philosophy of nominalism has influenced the younger generation today and how this ties into the identity crisis people are having. We'll talk about the beauty of the complementarity of male and female in the theology and our biblical worldview and anthropology of the human person and how this leads to ultimate self-discovery and is the answer to the crisis today that people are experiencing when it comes to their so-called identity. You're listening to Trending with Tim Marie. Here on Relevant Radio, joining me now is Dr. John Grabowski from the Catholic University of America. Again, author of the book, Unraveling Gender, The Battle Over Sexual Differences. We'll post a link in the show notes. Dr. Grabowski, thank you for joining us today on Trending. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. I read your recent book, Unraveling Gender, and some of the things you point to in the book include this philosophical crisis leading to the identity crisis we're experiencing today that has seeped into the way vast majority of us think. And so I'd like to talk about nominalism. If you could discuss what that philosophical approach to reality is and how it's a part of uh, trends you're seeing, especially among young people and college students today. Sure. Um, Philosophers will make a basic distinction between two ways of thinking about reality, realism or nominalism. Realism is the view that things have a nature that they share. So even though trees come in all different shapes and sizes, when I say tree, we all know what that is because we know what we recognize the nature of a tree, even though uh, they take different appearances. Nominalism denies that we sh- there are common natures that unite things and that our words actually name them, describe them. So nominalism kind of disconnects language from reality. Um, so that makes it easier um, kind of feeding into what 
you mentioned, this identity crisis, people get the idea that, well, if I just change the language, I can change the reality. I can, I can kind of mm-hmm. rename myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I could, by redescribing, if I'm unhappy with who I am, with the way I feel about myself, I can change my profile, my pronouns, my all of these things, because in this view, kind of language creates reality instead of language reflecting reality, reflecting the world around us that God gave us. It's interesting you mentioned this because it reminds me a lot of what we're seeing in the connection. I think that it will be a forthcoming crisis as well of the metaverse. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the connection and problems between nominalism and the metaverse. Um, well, um, you, you're, you're asking, you're probably asking someone from the wrong generation to, to really take a deep dive into this. But, it's okay. I'm an but, old I mean, soul. The, well, good. I'm just old. So soul and body, but that's okay. I, I mean, the idea that we can create an alternate reality, right? With our imaginations, with our technology, uh, which is what I take the metaverse to be. And we have different, like, versions of this in different comic book comic book universes that have have turned into popular movies and such but um feeds into the idea that we can create identities for ourselves digitally and then alter them when we want to so uh, my identity becomes something i project instead of something that i am something that's rooted in who i am in my in my body in my reality so we've we've kind of confused i think identity and reality and i definitely see it among young people who are really there even if they haven't kind of gotten uh exposed to gender ideology their gender ideology they are in a culture where the idea that identity is self-created self-articulated mm-hmm. is all around them right Right. If I can change language, as you said, I can change reality. And today we're living essentially with avatars, uh, which is essentially what living in the metaverse will be on one side. I mean, the artificial intelligence is a whole other component of it. But in a certain respect, we are living digitally right now with our social profiles, social media, especially younger generation using uh, technology such as as the primary means, not just of communication, but of almost a hangout. There's a reason why Google created what was referred to as a Google Hangouts and had this for mm-hmm. quite a while as a place for you to go in and hang out with video chat, which video chat is amazing. I think that it's a fantastic, phenomenal development, but it's meant to be a tool and uh, it's not supposed to replace face-to-face connection. Oh, can you talk a little yeah. bit, Professor, about how you see young people in, especially even in you know, a good Catholic institution, a Catholic university, struggling with nominalism and the way they view the world, but also view themselves? Sure. I mean, again, I think, I think we, as a culture, we've kind of absorbed some uh, bad philosophy that, again, uh, we kind of invent our own nature um that's that's modern existentialism or we invent our own truth which is postmodernism. and again even young people who have grown up in their faith in their family and they so they kind of know that's wrong but it's really hard to uh, resist all of those ideas especially when it gets packaged into media and entertainment and the digital world where they spend so much of their time 
um, it gets really easy to think that, you know, identity is just, identity is what I put on a screen, mm -hmm. my identity. And so then what starts to happen is, well, then my body is a screen, mm. right? I can project an identity through my body. And if I don't like the identity I'm projecting, I can change the image. And, mm. you know, we, we have technology that enables people to change their physical appearance, which for some people is an extension of being able to change, as you say, their avatar, their, their digital profile. Mm -hmm. What you said was so important. My body is an identity rather than my identity. Isn't that fascinating that, you know, I was yeah. following the story, this sensationalized uh, Instagram person who has become a massive influencer. I can't remember his name right now, but he basically fell in love with a a pop sensation out of Korea. And he started to go through with changing his appearance to look like this Asian pop sensation. And so mm. he, you know, has changed his eye shape. He's changed you know, the pulls and tugs of his skin. Uh, and it's become very feminized. And now he also says that he's entered into a marriage with this pop sensation, who I don't think he's even... Uh, met before but he has a cardboard cutout that he carries around of this person and there's also obviously now some gender dysphoric uh, struggles for this young man too and as I look sure. at it Dr. Grabowski it fascinates me because it's an identity and that's the identity he's holding to today but that could change tomorrow and so if you could unpack a little bit of how this identity crisis and gender crisis are connected to uh, the philosophical mindset of nominalism that many people, even people of faith, can be guilty of as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, again, I think it's I, I, another thing that's kind of floating around in the world around us and our, in our politics and some of our language, uh, Marxism, which also gives us the idea that language is power and the way you exercise power is by changing language, changing the, the language people use, which, again, it's it's kind of nominalism turned into a political program or, or a social program, right? I can effect change by changing language. And so uh, the fact that some people will insist on for example, that uh, they want to be addressed with a, a set of pronouns which differ from their physical reality, their their biological sex, or that differ from either sex altogether, just kind of an invented set of pronouns. It's kind of a reflection of this fracturing of our of our of our language, so that we more and more see language as disconnected from ourselves, from the world around us, and instead it becomes an instrument of power for me to project an identity, an identity which other people have to accept. And this is where, again, young people growing up in this world who want to, who want to be sensitive, who want to be inclusive, who are, who are encouraged all the time to be inclusive of others, they don't know how to what, what do you do when someone comes at you and says, well, you've got to use my pronouns, which don't correspond to what I look like or anything? A lot of people have no idea. But it, it, it kind of changes the script for all of us because mm -hmm. 
how then do we relate to others in a way that's loving, respectful, um, but also truthful, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've had other, I've had former students who teach at other Catholic colleges reach out to me and say, I have people who identify as transgender in my classes and they want me to use a different name, a different set of pronouns and what do I do? And mm-hmm. my own, I have not had that experience yet. I'm sure it's coming. Um, but I would use a different name for someone because I yes. tell students, yep. you know, if you use a nickname, that's that's yeah. fine. Um, yep. I have no problem. And a lot of names are not gender specific. But if someone asks me to use a set of pronouns, which obviously contradict their yeah. body and their physical mm-hmm. reality, I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Because I don't want to participate in that distortion of reality. I appreciate you mentioning this name challenge because it's uh, been a question many people, as you say, have been having to navigate at work or in a classroom setting. And my approach started really kind of right around Bruce Je- when Bruce Jenner came out was that I said, okay, fine, I'll concede the name. I might remind you of the name. For example, I still call so-called Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner, just to remind us of that. But sure. okay, I'll concede the name, but I can't lie to you and say that you are suddenly a female when you're not because that's going against reality and that's actually extremely right. harmful versus a right. name preference uh is like you said a nickname and i know so many people to this day adults whose names have nothing to do with the word kitty but they'll still say they want to be called kitty i may think it's extremely immature personally <laughs> especially in a professional setting but i okay that's fine if that's what you want uh right. so this brings me to the documentary What is a Woman that and, and book that was recently released by Matt Walsh. And mm. it was interesting watching that because he engaged in a conversation that I have had many times before with people where you're talking about something and you're defining terms and you're asking someone to do something such as define what is a woman or, you know, mm. what does it mean to kill someone? You know, if you're trying to argue and debate about abortion and there were mm-hmm. multiple times in his conversations, both on the streets of Los Angeles to uh, a conversation he had with abortionists and pediatrician who pushes a transgender agenda for Planned Parenthood, Dr. Forcier, and they were talking about how basically, well, are we really sitting in this room right now? I don't know. Are we actually having this conversation right now? And I don't know. Are we, you know, these people are asking, like, I don't know. Are we having this conversation? But then at one point, uh, Dr. Forcier actually ends up talking to Matt about Santa Claus. And Matt's kind of asking Mm -hmm. her this question of, well, okay, are we really going to trust a four-year-old to change their own gender when they actually believe in Santa Claus? And the doctor responds by saying, oh, well, that's a wonderful thing, you know, to a child, you know, believing in Santa Claus is a part of their imagination and their reality. And to that child, Santa Claus is real. And that's like, I agree with you. That's appropriate for a child. But then as they continue the conversation, all of a sudden you realize the doctor is actually saying that if a child believes Santa Claus is real and that Santa Claus delivers that child's presence, then that is true. That is de facto true. And without going further down that analogy, because, you know, we're here on radio, I think that it's fascinating to see that people will go so far. If that is your reality, that is your reality. And we will 100% reinforce that reality. So reality becomes self-created. We all Mm -hmm. have our own realities, um, which again, that's, that's kind of nominalism on steroids, right? This is, (laughs) we're, 
we're just all in our own little world inventing reality with our language, whatever that means to us. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I mean, is that really the world we want to live in, right? Where we're really not connected to each other or the world around us in any real way. Let's turn the tables here. As we're continuing our conversation, if you're just joining us, joining me now is the author of Unraveling Gender, The Battle Over Sexual Differences. You can pick up the book. It's an excellent overview, uh, first, of what's happening in the culture where we've kind of seen these extremes of some of what we're talking about with the gender crisis we've been discussing here on Trending, but looking to the reality of how when we turn away from God, when we turn away from the biblical anthropological biological reality of the human person, the damage and fallout that is done. One of the parts of your book, you talk about the beauty and complementarity of the sexes, male and female, and you dive into the biblical anthropology of the human person and how this is what leads to self-discovery. Can you discuss yeah. a little bit of the gift of what sexual complementarity is and what we're missing when we throw it out to accept an LGBTQ ideology today? Mm. I mean, uh, uh, so you, you keep mentioning biblical anthropology. For me, uh, the, one of the most important and most profound readings of biblical anthropology was given to us by St. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body, right? And he, reading through the second account of creation in Genesis 2 and 3, he points out that in Genesis 2, all the way through the text, after the creation of the human, Adam, in Genesis 2, uh, 7 and following, it's just Adam, 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 Adam. And then suddenly, after God casts this deep sleep on the man, takes out one of his ribs, builds it up into a woman, leads her to the man, he breaks out in this poem of joy. This one is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman because out of man she's been taken. So for the first time, we have the sex-specific terms used in biblical Hebrew. This one will be Isha, out of Ish she's been taken. Um, and what John Paul II says is, this is the first articulation of what he calls the spousal meaning of the body. He, In other words, he discovers the meaning of his male body, of his physical makeup, when he encounters woman. She discovers the meaning of her female body when she encounters man. So our bodies orient us toward each other. That's, that's one of the bases of complementarity, but it goes beyond that. It's not just our physical makeup that orients us toward each other. John Paul will say we are not only physically complementary as men and women, we are ontologically and psychologically complementary. So mm. in other words, in the whole of who we are, we are ordered to one another. We find our, we find the full meaning of who we are and who we're created to be in each other. To go back to our earlier discussion, it's our bodies aren't a screen. Our bodies are a compass. And they point us back to our origin, which is love. God creates us out of his love, out of just the sheer gift of his generosity to us. But it, they point us toward love by t pointing us toward one another. And, our, and so the meaning, the way we're fulfilled as human beings is to give ourselves in love, and that's written into our bodies, that we can only find that kind of fulfillment in 
giving ourselves as a man or as a woman. And that's true both in marriage, but also in a different way in consecrated life in the church. We need the gifts of both men and women to have the body of Christ really flourish. You just said a few things that are just one-liners that hit this topic so poignantly. Our bodies aren't a screen. You said our bodies are a compass. And you went on to say our bodies point us toward love by pointing us toward one another. If that could be like a blanket summary of so much of what St. John Paul II says, I think it's a beautiful summary. It's something that could come right out of the anthropology that he teaches in the catechesis known as theology of the body. He at one point says, Dr. Grabowski, the two reciprocal complemental complementing ways of being a body, he says, uh, reveal at the same time who a human being is essentially. And I think that Mm -hmm. seeing that, okay, here's a male and here's female, and it's before one another that we suddenly discover who we are and what we are made for. And he goes on to say that these are two complementary dimensions of self-knowledge and self-determination. And so when you hear this, you see, okay, well, I learn about myself as a woman before a man and a man learns about himself as a man before me. And I remember uh, one of the first times I spoke at a university and I was speaking to a group of young men and I looked at them and I said, could you imagine a world where there were no women, no women whatsoever? And it was like a pin could have dropped in the room at every Mm. young man's attention at that moment, and I said, imagine, I'm not just talking about, you know, the fact that women are really attractive and there'd be a lot of beauty missing. They were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, what would that be like? And it was like they could have run in 20 different directions running into walls because they recognized it would be so baffling and so confusing. They couldn't even fathom it. And it was a a jaw-dropping moment because they realized, wow, I learn about myself and I change the moment a woman walks into the room. Yes. And that's yeah. a no, that's dark so contrast. True. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. That I mean, yeah, that that's that that's so so true. It's it's our bodies aren't a screen. Our bodies are a win another way to think about it, not just a compass, but a window. Because John Paul says over and over again in those catechesis, the body expresses the person. When we see a male body, this is a male person. When we see a female body, this is a female person. This, and they're both made in the image of likeness of God. They're, and the communion that we're called to is a reflection of God who is a communion of persons. We just celebrated Trinity Sunday, right? Because our God is an eternal communion of irreducibly different persons who share a common divine nature who live in an eternal communion of love. And we're called to be a created reflection of that in marriage, in consecrated life, in in our world. That's a much better picture than the little nominalist bubbles where we all create our own reality, I think. Mm -hmm. And we say that there is no such thing as woman, that there is no such thing as man. One of my favorite quotes ever from St. John Paul II, there are a lot of great things he says, but this one has always really just hit a chord with me. He said, the dignity and balance of human life depends at every moment of history and in every longitude and latitude upon who man will be for woman and who woman will be for man. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear that. that in, uh, go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, that the human history passes through the sexually differentiated body that, that, and it's called to marriage. It's called a family. Um, this is why he said in, in his uh, apostolic exhortation on family, familiars consortio, the future of humanity passes through the family. This is how God writes the history of the world and of our salvation is through our, because he created us in his image, male and female, and our bodies are an integral part of that. And seeing that through mom, seeing that through dad, not just through dating and the attraction between mm-hmm. the sexes, but seeing the models of this is what femininity looks like a little ahead of me, 10 years ahead of me, 20 years ahead of me, 30 years mm-hmm. ahead of me, 50 years ahead of me. These models of femininity and masculinity are so important that we see model when people talk about you know, the breakdown of the family and maybe, you know, a child doesn't have a, one of their parents, especially a father. I say, you know, expose them to as many good men in various age ranges as possible to help give them Mm -hmm. a model of what it means to be a man, how they can be affirmed and loved and mentored by these men, because the reality is is we need all of those models. Yeah, yeah, especially when we come from fractured and broken families that have been upended by a lot of our cultural upheaval, like the sexual revolution. It's, It's so true. That's Dr. John Grabowski. He is the author of the book, Unraveling Gender, The Battle Over Sexual Differences. Highly recommend the book. We'll post a link on social media as well as in the podcast notes for today's show. You can share this episode. Just grab the podcast. He's also the professor at the Catholic University of America, a good faithful Catholic university I, I mentioned, which is hard to find sometimes these days. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. I'll be back in just a moment to discuss the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. Uh, today, we're talking about generosity and will also unpack kindness. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Would you consider yourself a generous person? Would you consider yourself a kind person? We're going to talk about generosity and kindness, two of the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit in our series on the Holy Spirit. Mother Teresa once said something very sobering about generosity, and I'll share that with you in just a moment. Always willing to take your questions here on Trending, the numbers 1-888-914-9149. Had a question come in about modesty as we head into the summer season, the bathing suit season. It is not always fun or easy for us girls. John is asking a question about bathing suits. John, welcome to Trending. What is your question today? Hey, Timory. Love your show. Thanks for allowing me to uh, ask a question. So, um, yeah, my question is it's pretty specific, and it's related to modesty. I'm the father of a uh, Catholic father of, uh, of uh, two young, young gals. And um, my question is, is it okay? How do you feel about um uh, young girls, and I'm talking. I'm not talking about teens. I'm talking about between the ages of like five or four and like seven, wearing um, uh, one-piece swimsuits versus two-piece. And again, I'm not. I'm not referring to uh, <clears throat> you know bikinis or anything like that. That that uh, teens or older gals maybe who are non-formed would wear. I'm just talking about two pieces that most non-Catholics would consider. Um, 
you know, innocent. How do, how do you feel about that? Oh, I think, great question. Give me a soft question, given that it's for five and seven-year-olds. You're not making me talk about modesty for older people. Um, okay, so... I will just say our approach in our house, our daughter's wearing a one-piece bathing suit. She's one-year-old. Although, sure, some of these little, you know, bikinis for babies are hilariously adorable, it's also just sending the wrong message. And I took many years to come around on the bathing suit topic. I grew up in the fitness world. I grew up in the dance world. I think the human body is something that is beautiful. And, and when you have a fit body, you want to show it off. And when you're also single and in your young years and you're attracting and attracting other people, you want to wear those bathing suits. But that's particularly something that young kids, I think that young girls are being pressured so intensely to dress in a way that attracts attention it's one thing to be cute it's another thing to literally be dressing provocatively and i am shocked john by the number of people um, who are okay with their little girls wearing clothing that is very very obviously clothing for attracting people of the opposite sex and it's a difficult thing for parents to navigate because sometimes you don't realize it until you put it on your kid and you go, oh, wow, that wasn't quite the fit I was expecting. Um, so, no, one-piece bathing suits should absolutely be a thing, especially for young children. I don't even think it's a conversation we should be having. I really do think this should be pretty common sense. Um, okay, sure, maybe a two-piece bathing suit that, you know, covers the full stomach is great. But I think that we just don't need to bother children with thinking about that. And kids are, especially young girls, are starting puberty earlier and earlier. Their bodies are changing um, because of, you know, so many factors that we could discuss. But that pressure just doesn't need to be there. The pressure women face today when it comes to clothing, modesty, and the idea that girls in all age ranges today are always expected to be hot and available is crippling for women. I was actually in the airport just a few weeks ago. And I was looking at a photo on this huge advertisement, gosh, probably about 10 feet high, five feet or so wide. And I'm looking at this girl and she's wearing a beautiful, beautiful outfit. Her body is very much so developed. And I all of a sudden look at her face and I realize when I'm looking at her face, this girl has got to only be seven or eight years old. And I go, oh, wow, the way I, you know, viewed her body was that of a teenager or someone older. That's how developed this child's body was. And, of course, we have to recognize that photoshopping and editing is so heavily done today. That may not have actually been her original body. It could have been heavily edited. But what it reminded me of is the fact that these young girls are pressured so intensely by seven and eight years old to be attractive toward other people of the opposite sex and to move in a way that is attractive and something as simple as the type of bathing suits and types of clothes we buy for little kids I think really does help to influence not just the modesty issue but the self-respect and self-love that decreases pressure for people to always perform for others so that's kind of my short answer I hope that's helpful John especially as we go into the summer season of navigating bathing suits and I will speak to for just a moment to the challenge of bathing suits for all ages for women, especially as we get into the teen years and further on. So I, as I mentioned before, grew up in the dancing and athletic world. I thought the body was something beautiful and meant to be 
adorned. And I do believe the body is something beautiful and is something that should be adorned. But that doesn't mean we have to show everything. And I think also the bathing suits and bikinis that were being worn 20 years ago in many ways are far more modest than some of the bathing suits and bikinis that are being worn today. Although you could argue both are basically a form of underwear, undergarments for women, I think the shape and the way they're fitting the body today uh, is almost less than underwear today. (laughs) I mean, if you just look at it, I'm absolutely shocked by it. You know, my husband and I will talk about how and it's hard to go to the beach. I mean, there are butts and chests everywhere for everyone to see. And I'm a woman and I'm having to try and be like, oh gosh, I got to look the other way because the elephant in the room is beautiful and you want to admire it. That's second nature. We're attracted to beauty, but I can't imagine all the more so if I were a man at the beach. I mean, these seasons are so difficult. My husband and I have talked about how we do kind of prefer if possible because we love going to the lake and the beach uh, to try and go to beaches that we know are a little bit more secluded or that are in areas that you know, just the population seems to dress a little more respectfully. And I have found it rather refreshing. Being a California girl moving to the Midwest has been many challenges. But one thing I really respected is that although the beach culture and the lake culture is certainly, uh, there's still a lot of provocative swimsuits. It's fascinating to see the number of people who are willing, willing and proudly wearing one piece bathing suits from moms of young kids to young women to the fact that most of the young girls are wearing one piece bathing suits or more than that covering them up and i think that it speaks to the christianity that is still very prevalent in the culture and that you know peers are influencing peers and saying hey this is what i'm comfortable in as an adult and this is what is appropriate for a child and to say that i think is important and to help our teenagers And being willing to say, you know, I don't have to show it all, even though it's beautiful and it's fun and it's exciting uh, to wear a bathing suit that I don't feel like I'm going to have or actually have fall off partially when I jump in the water, when I move around. I mean, that's just the reality of what these two-piece bathing suits are. I've been there. I've done that. It it happens. (laughs) And, And why would we continue to allow ourselves to be in those environments of discomfort or pressure or to overly um, desire and attract attention, those are mindsets that are difficult to develop and they take time. And I really do hope and pray for the guidance of how to start teaching modesty to our daughter. And it may seem like simple little things now, but, you know, she's already of an age where she's aware of other people. And, you know, embarrassment could be something that starts to enter in for them. And so I try not to, you know, change my daughter's diaper now as much in front of other people, especially the opposite sex. Or if I'm changing her clothes, I try not to let her just run around naked all, you know, in front of a bunch of people, not because there's anything wrong that she should be embarrassed, but because there's there's just this natural sense of modesty that I'm trying to implement without making a big deal about it at the same time, because these children are so innocent early on. And that's a beautiful thing that their shame hasn't developed fully, but shame in and of itself is a good thing. Yet as a culture, we hate shame. The moment we feel shame, we want to reject it. But it was part of the natural reaction of Adam and Eve after they fell. That once they realized that they were naked after the fall and that they could objectify someone else and someone else could objectify and take advantage of them, they started to cover themselves up. 
because that's something that they didn't want to do to another or have done to them. But today we try to reject shame as if it's a bad thing and harmful and offensive to us. That's something we have to overcome as a society to help us understand that shame can actually be a guide for the opportunity for reconciliation, the opportunity for modesty, the opportunity for growth, and to be more comfortable and joyful with ourselves. This is our conscience kicking in. Are we aware and are we in tune with them? Or are we destroying consciences by the types of bathing suits and attitudes we have about basic kids' clothes and bathing suits when they're five and six and seven years old? You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Okay, let's dive into our virtue series on the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. We were so close to the end. We'll take this into next week. We'll talk about patience next week and others but today I want to talk about two being generosity and kindness okay so remembering that the fruits of the Holy Spirit are absolute gifts from God there are seven gifts of the Holy Spirit but we're talking about the 12 fruits the Holy Spirit is God himself given to us so Jesus Christ says I will send you the counselor the advocate we are confirmed in God, the confirmation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are completed and given in us in that gift of in that sacrament of confirmation. And there's a human dimension of practicing things such as generosity and kindness. But there's also the dimension of we can't do it on our own. That's why God to complete the goodness and the virtue that we are called to so that we can be with him in heaven and be excellent human beings that he created us to be. He gives us these fruits infused as the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so one of those is generosity. I want to challenge you to ask yourself this question. Am I generous? But I want you to think about it and listen to this sobering remark that St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta once said. She said, what is called generosity is usually only the vanity of giving. We enjoy the vanity more. If you can't feed a hundred people, then just feed one. What St. Mother Teresa is saying is that what we call generosity today is just us being like so proud of ourselves. And we could do this publicly or we could do it privately. Oh man, I feel great. I just donated $5,000 to this charity. Or Oh man, I feel so good. You know, I support this charity. Did you know that I support this charity? I really get behind this charity. And there's a balance. There's a good thing saying you support a charity and encouraging others. But we do get into our own heads. Now, it's good to feel good about the good we are doing. But we shouldn't have to feel good in order to do good. I think that that's part of what St. Mother Trace is getting at. She said we enjoy the vanity more than the fact that we were actually generous. And she makes a comment, not quite qualified, but let's qualify. She then says, if you can't feed 100 people, then just feed one. I thought that that remark was even more striking because there are many people myself included at times where you know you think that you have to donate all this money to a charity or you think that you have to make a real change with the donation amount you give or the time that you give but generosity there are opportunities for generosity all around us and it's much simpler than we make it But the problem is is that I think often we have this all-or-nothing approach. 
that we're only going to give when we can give a lot. And we think we can do think about doing the maximum good, which it is good to think about doing as much good as we can. But it's also an even greater thing to do good things in the simple moment-to-moment opportunities we have. Maybe in your family. Maybe with a neighbor. Maybe with that person you encounter in front of the grocery store. It might not be in the massive quantities we hope or expect. I think often people uh, delay or sometimes never get to tithing because they're waiting for themselves to hit a certain dollar amount before they can start doing that. When in reality, we're called to be generous and to give. And sometimes that's less than other times. But there are always opportunities. And one of the things I think we often get wrong is that we understand we look at Catholic theology and Catholic social teaching, we get justice and generosity confused. So justice is understood as giving to someone else what is their due, what is due to them, what they actually deserve. So let's say that there's a family next door and Yes, they're working and they're doing what they can to take care of their family, but maybe they just don't have enough to fully provide for their family, to provide the quite the right amount of food for the family. But let's say my family has plenty of food and we do have food actually in abundance and plenty. I actually have a responsibility out of justice, not out of generosity, to share food with my neighbor. This is part of the Catholic Church's teaching of the universal destination of goods. That yes, we have something and it is ours and we own it. We're proud of that, especially as Americans. But just because we own it doesn't mean that it's meant for us. Just because we worked for it ourselves doesn't mean it's meant for us. The universal destination of goods helps us to understand everything we have comes from God and returns to God. And in justice, there are things that we often should be giving to others that don't really belong to us and aren't even considered generosity. Versus generosity is going beyond the need that you can meet of your neighbor in giving what is yours, what you might have even needed. Not just what you have and have the capacity to share, but what, again, is something that might even hurt a little bit. Some people will say, give until it hurts. I often hear Father Rocky say, give until you smile. Because... Often in sacrifice, it can bring great joy. So a reminder and ways to be generous, time, attention, just attention and time with others. Food, things, sharing, donating. But remember in our fallen human nature, it's difficult for us to share and to give. But Venerable Fulton Sheen says, never measure your generosity by what you give, but rather by what you have left. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. We're unpacking the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. We just talked about generosity. We're going to unpack kindness. Now, remembering fruit or is a consequence of the Holy Spirit, I think is one way to think about it, that when we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, we should be bearing good fruits. You know, when God is a part of our lives, when God is a center of our life, we should be seen and judged and understood by what 
we bear. It's a pure gift what our Lord Jesus Christ gives us in the Holy Spirit himself. And one of, I think, the best places to turn to when talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit of kindness is St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. He says, and this is chapter three, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience, forbearing one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in the body, in one body, and be thankful. St. Paul in Colossians chapter 3 just talked about a number of virtues, compassion, kindness, meekness, patience, thankfulness, charity. And as he unpacks each of these in this short few verses, kindness is right there smack in the middle. And what stands out to me is when, as the church really teaches and emphasizes in the theology, if you have one virtue, you have the all, all of them. And really the chief of all the virtues is charity. If you have charity, you will see an abundance in the other virtues in your life. And kindness is one of those that is so necessary. When I think of kindness, I think of our good and tender and kind mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. When I teach and talk to my baby girl about being a woman and being a good girl, we talk about how Mother Mary's kind and gentle and good. And we ask that Jesus makes us like his mother to be kind and gentle and good. St. Thomas Aquinas affirms that kindness breeds cheerfulness and affability. Those are two things I would love to be. I'm not very good at being affable. I, kind of that idea of being amiable, affable, you know, being willing in, I think, a kind of just not being so difficult. Uh, this good nature that, you know, not that you just become a yes person, but that affability leads you to kind of not just be such a stick in the mud. And I don't mean stubborn, not willing to do things, but that, you know, when people say, hey, do you want to do this? You're willing. You're not always, you know, wanting to do what you want to do. And, it's a form of, I think, just being friendly and amiable. It's interesting when you look at other definitions for affability, one of the words that is used is a geniality. We don't really use that in the 21st century. It's something you see more so in older literature and texts. The Catechism of the Catholic Church actually talks about how kindness enables us to avoid rash judgments gossip, and brooding over injuries. We give others the benefit of the doubt and preserve their good name. So by being kind to others, it helps us in our judgments, holding our tongue, and not kind of focusing in on our own injuries, but turning toward others, keeping in mind other people's names and reputation. St. Thomas Aquinas says, the greatest kindness one can render to any man consists of leading him from error to truth. Now, so often we like to think that leading someone from error to truth is telling them what's what and teaching them and educating them and informing them on how to make the right opinion. 
And yes, those things can be particularly important, especially when passed down to the younger generations, especially your own children. One of the primary calls of people who are married is to have children and to educate them. But when we talk about leading others from error to truth, we first, before we talk about slamming them with book knowledge or opinions or how to speak rightly or vote rightly or whatever it might be, the best way to lead someone as a kindness from error to truth, as St. Thomas Aquinas refers to it, the best way to do that is by our witness, by the kindness and gentleness and patience we show one another. We'll talk about patience here on Monday during our happy hour and how there's studies showing and talking about, especially therapists, discussing how patient people are actually happier. And isn't that interesting? It's a virtue. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. But kindness, we are doing a kindness toward our neighbor, a service toward our neighbor. When we show them by our actions what truth is. And remember, truth itself is Jesus Christ himself who is love. Perfect love. That is who Jesus Christ is. And so when we are teaching others truth we're teaching them what love is both in word but even more so in deed in witness this is how little kids learn little kids are sponges and little itty bitty babies i'm learning with my child she's not a sponge by drilling in her abcd or putting flashcards in front of her or throwing her in front of a tv and being in awe because she knows all of these different things and all of these different animals because she looks at a tv screen Yes, that is truth, and she's getting concepts and ideas, which are important. But one of the greatest truths that children first learn is the love we have for them from the moment they come out of the womb to care for a little baby and give that baby unconditional love and unending attention in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day, in the midst of exhaustion, in the midst of fears and worries and anxieties that everything comes up. That's truth. And that's a kindness that through our witness of love and love that bears all things, even things that are difficult and crazy in this world, that we're still showing that witness that we don't become embittered by the world and fighting for truth. I felt as if this week has been a really difficult news cycle week and a lot of content has just been heavy and As people of faith, we can get so stuck up on the evil and the bad and the darkness in the world. But then at the same time, that's what the devil wants. For us to be hung up on what truth is and just want to fight for it and be upset whenever other people don't advocate for it or live for it. But as St. Thomas Aquinas says, the greatest kindness one can render to any man consists in leading him from error to truth. That isn't always with the best argument. It's often with the way we show love. And the fruits of the Holy Spirit, including generosity and kindness, will help us to renew the fullness of the human person and the need for God's grace to get us through the day-to-day, but truly show us how to love and be loved. This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. Impatience is second nature for us. But did you know that being patient actually makes us happier? I'm going to dive into some of both 
the psychology as well as the theology of the fruit and virtue of patience and how it will really be freeing for us in our lives. We'll discuss this during our weekly happy hour. If you've not joined us on a Monday, it's happy Monday. So join me Monday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.